Well, hey, Chris. Hey, John. In the mood for some podcasting? Sure. What do you want to podcast about today? Uh, well, it hadn't occurred to me that we might podcast about anything except the thing that we always podcast about. So I guess I'm, I'm really only ready to podcast about Better Call Saul, Season 4, Episode 5. What was the name of it? Quite a Ride. Quite a Ride. But first, we have a little bit of business, Chris. Before we start talking about Better Call Saul, we need to choose the classic spinoff that we're going to be putting up against Better Call Saul. Uh-huh. It's our attempt to discern if Better Call Saul is really the sterling example of a spinoff that we think it is and that many people uh, seem to think it is. Yes. In order to have one this week, we need to go back to, if you don't mind, the method we used last time, which is we're going to spin the spinoff globe. Yeah that has the names of different television spinoffs decoupaged upon it in the place of the city names. Yes. When you settle on one of those, we're going to decide which spinoff we're going to cover. It's pretty simple. Okay. I'll be the spinner again. And here we go. And okay. Right here on like the Bulgaria area. And it is the girl from uncle. Okay. The man from Uncle had a spinoff called The Girl from Uncle. Oddly not The Woman from Uncle. <laughs> right. No, no. This is back in the days of girls. Oh, this was the 60s for sure. <laughs> I mean, I never was much into Man from Uncle. It was a little before my time, and so I I knew about it, but uh, I don't know that much about it. Not only have I not seen anything from the spinoff, I've never seen an episode of the parent show, uh, The Man from Uncle. However, I do know various references to it. Like, I know the two lead characters are named Ilya Kiryakin and uh, Napoleon Solo. Right, right. Folks, look in the show notes. You'll see the link to the pilot episode of Girl from Uncle. You can watch that and follow along with us later. But otherwise, stick around for some Salt Talk. And we're back to talk about, as you mentioned, the fifth episode of the fourth season of AMC's Breaking Bad spinoff, Better Call Saul. This episode was called, as we mentioned before, Quite a Ride, and it was written by Ann Cherkis, who is a longtime writer on this universe of shows, and directed by Michael Morris, who is a television director who's done a lot of stuff that is highly regarded that I haven't seen. Except for Bloodline. I don't know if you watched Bloodline, the Netflix show. I think he was heavily involved in that. No. Uh, The episode was quite a ride. Uh, It was fun uh, and just had uh, lots of, uh, you know, we kind of uh, complain or I do once in a while a little bit about the slow burn of the show where it, and I think what really uh, does it is when I don't see that many new characters or new settings or new ideas, but this one was so full of different things that we didn't uh, uh, know we were going to be seeing that uh, it was just a, a, a great entertainment. Even if it didn't, I don't know that any of the developments really were big developments when you, by the time you get to the end of the episode, I didn't necessarily say, aha, wow, you know, uh, but uh, I, had, I had a lot of fun watching it. Yeah, I guess this would be a good example of one where the storytelling was so fun to watch and the character moments were so well delivered and, and earned that... It doesn't matter to me too much that at the end, yes, the overall arc of the plot hasn't been pushed forward too much. In fact, we got no Nacho stuff, and he was kind of the the center of the most exciting part of the storyline in a way last time. Right. Um, but I think, obviously, what made this episode really noteworthy and, and definitely kicked it off with a bang was that cold open that, I mean, I don't normally do this when I'm watching television. I sometimes might mutter something under my breath or just make a, a, a sound. But I don't usually just say, holy shit, right. <laughs> out loud when I'm watching a show. Yeah. But with that second shot of the, you know, there's a shot from inside the shredder. Uh-huh. And then there's the shot, I guess, of the drawer full of cell phones. Right. That's Saul's office. But it just felt like such a development to honestly be like, oh, oh my God, I'm so excited. We're about to see Saul Goodman. Yes. And then we did. Yay. It was like the first time I've seen Saul with so much Jimmy inside him, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Just because you know now so much more about his his background. You could chalk it up as a fan service kind of moment. Mm -hmm. But the way that it deepened the story, but just by showing us this side of Saul, this moment that could have easily been a scene 
from a late episode of Breaking Bad. You know, that we, that right. moment could have fit in perfectly. Right. Um, but what it did was it showed the importance of that box that we know that Jimmy has carried with him. Um, the box he had in the first episode of Better Call Saul that he pulled the tape out of. Mm-hmm. So the fact that that's what was hidden in his wall, I thought was very touching. Right. In a way. Um, and then the other thing is... It creates this new mystery that we have that exists now concurrent with the Breaking Bad timeline and possibly concurrent or very close to concurrent with some of the gene scenes that we're seeing. But something's going to happen on November 12th at 3 p.m. And Francesca has to be there and and she's going to get a call. Right. That's all we know. Right. But we don't know what that is now. And that now could be... Anything almost, but I mean, it definitely could be tied up in the story. And the other thing is, I guess we might be able to assume who it might be, but when Jimmy says, if you need a lawyer to Francesca, and he gives her a card, he says, tell him Jimmy sent you. Yeah. You know, who's, whose card is he giving them? Is it Davis and Maine? Is it Howard uh, Hamlin? He said, tell him or tell him. It was hard to say whether it was them or him that he was saying, but tell him Jimmy sent you. Mm-hmm. Them doesn't sound like uh, Kim. Right. But maybe she works for a firm. Anyway, yeah. those are my thoughts and the mysteries I now have. And I thought it was brilliant that they, they did something that felt fan y and pleasurable as fan service, but that also sort of secretly and stealthily said, yeah, we can now keep you guessing for the next couple seasons exactly what this phone call is about and, you know, whose card, etc. Right. The phone call made me think it's just a payphone that she's supposed to be at, you know, the way that, that she said. But, but yeah, but we don't know... Uh, uh, why that day and time is what he's chosen or why he thinks he needs to ever uh, talk to her again if he's the one who's going to be calling that place where she's supposed to be. I don't know. But anyway, yes, uh, uh, say fan service, I did feel like, did they hear us complaining about uh, uh, not getting to Saul soon enough uh, and say, okay, we're going to show you something, and then just showed us the most fun, tense moment. You know, it wasn't just a flash forward to him sitting around in his office. It was the most intense moment uh, and makes you think that this is what the show could be like if we get here and put him in this kind of... There's just something super thrilling about the loud suit and about the columns and the constitution on the wall which he then rips apart you know to right. get to his his past i don't know i don't know how how much that was a visual metaphor but just that setting and the heightened uh drama of knowing that he's uh in fear for his life and has to skip town you know that's kind of what this show chose not to be right from the start but we do wonder well at what point if any will we kind of have that as the normal status quo so it definitely was a thrill to jump into it for that amount of time. But as far as the purpose of it, um, I kind of wonder if, uh, besides just fan service, like you said, if really the main purpose was just to remind us and show us uh, how burner phones are, you know, because all throughout Breaking Bad we're using that, but it's not all throughout this show that we're seeing people make a call and then break the phone and throw it in the trash, you know. So they're like, uh, and since this episode is going to concentrate so much on on phones, uh, they're like, let's let's show them that, remind them that, in an intense, fun way, and then go to the present day. Sometimes fan service is just goodness, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it's just this is what we've been waiting for, and it's the first time I've seen a Saul Goodman scene where I know that the writers know we love this guy. Yeah, not just in the way that we loved Saul Goodman because he was entertaining, but we actually care about this guy. Yeah. Right. So I think that Bob Odenkirk's performance and the writing and the directing and everything was just adding that element of now we see a little bit more of this figure, but he was still acting so very Saul-like, right down to the fact that Francesca's just not impressed with him. You know, I'd begun to wonder, she didn't seem to like him when she was his and Kim's secretary. Mm-hmm. How did things turn around? Maybe she just never right. <laughs> started liking him at all. Right. She just tolerated him throughout the the bulk of their relationship, probably. And here we're seeing the end of their relationship where... She is uh, just almost not tolerating him. I mean, it almost makes Jimmy seem more pathetic than I I am comfortable with. Um, But it is fun to see at that moment just how isolated and alone he is. Because theoretically, he's not in a position when that's going on where he could get Kim on the phone and she would be sympathetic to him in any way. But we don't know. Yeah. From that scene, it went right into the um, CC Mobile scene where Jimmy breaks the phone, uh, making sure the customer sees it, and and then sells a guy... 
you know, I guess legitimately sells him some phones, but right. I, I'm assuming there's a markup because these were on reserve and he's making it seem like this great opportunity. Right. Um, I mean, that guy was a little bit of a stooge, both as a character and as a as a writing device, but I think it served a purpose of showing those little touches that Jimmy will go to, like um, the trouble he goes to, like putting the on hold sign and making sure the customer sees him break the phone, all these little things that are part of the performance or the showmanship that you frequently mention. Yeah, that was a fun scene. It was perfect salesmanship. How are you doing that business? On the phone. <laughs> How are you scheduling appointments? On the phone. How are you arranging payments? On the phone. And who's listening? That's right. They know every lick and tittle. So you're living your life free and easy. And then one day, at a time of their choosing, bam, they bring the hammer down to Chinatown. Jesus. Jesus is right. I'm telling you, these guys don't fool around. And they will clean your bones faster than a school of piranhas. Oh, I'll tell you what I do. I practice something we call information hygiene. Can't be traced, can't be tracked. That'll keep you clean as a whistle. And what they don't know can't hurt you, especially if you use it only once per. You know, that's kind of key. Once per. Once per what? Once per week, once per day, once per call. I mean, depends on the nature of your situation. <sighs> How much are they? Cheaper than an audit. Guaranteed. Did you catch the phrase, every lick and tittle? Yeah, I thought that that was a, you know, uh, uh, that did stand out to me because uh, it seemed to me like an idiom that I don't know. And that I said, that sounds like a nice old-fashioned phrase that I've never heard before. Are you familiar with it? I'd never heard it before, and I don't think it existed as a phrase before this, because the first two or three entries in the Google search were people saying, I've never heard this before, but tonight on Better Call Saul, uh, Jimmy said every lick and tittle. But oh, lick and tittle strange. both have, have definitions that mean like small things or, or detail-oriented things. Right. So that just means they're listening to every little thing you say. You know, You just clung to that. Well, from there, we go to a scene that I guess will get us into the Mike side of the storyline. We'll come back to Jimmy in a minute. But the guy with the mustache who shows up, he seems to be from France. But basically, he's there to be led through these insane security steps that Mike has put in place that seem very Gus and very Mike-ish, you know, to, to, to really cover every detail um, before they get anyone out there to look at the place. How soon did you realize what was going on with, with that scene? Once I saw the location, I instantly figured, oh, yeah, this is just like everything else. This is a step that that we know Gus has to go through. Um, and this is an interesting way to kind of show the way that Mike is helping Gus and to kind of show the how, how detail-oriented and just how stringent Gus's policies are about mm -hmm. who he'll work with. Mm -hmm. Both of those scenes were really neat, the scenes with the two different contractors that they brought in to sort of give a quote on the, on the meth lab. Yeah, it was cool and well done, and I liked both of the actors. And I thought it was kind of fun seeing the difference between the two guys and why Gus would like the second guy more than the first guy who, you know, on the face of things seemed pretty competent and seemed like a character who could pop up on this show. Um, you know what I mean? He, he had the look and feel of a guy who you could see more of and you could see interacting with these guys. Right. But the second guy, once I saw him, I was like, oh, no, 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 no. This is the guy that they're going to hire because he takes out the notebook and he's getting his hands dirty and he's going around and he's he's mentioning all the stuff that might go wrong. And I actually, right now, my, my wife and I are looking at uh, remodeling our basement mm -hmm. and we've seen a lot of contractors over here. And, and you do sort of lean in and respect the ones who say, I don't know if we're going to be able to do that because look at the clearance here and this pipe there. I'm just letting you know that might cost $2,000 to move that pipe. You'd be better off putting your shower over here. Things like that, as opposed to the people who just go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get you some good designs here. Right. You know what I mean? Like, right. And I'm not saying that the guys who are being positive are wrong, but we, we do tend to, when the guy leaves, it's, uh, you know... It's like you go, that guy seemed to know what he was talking about if he brought up some some less than optimal aspects. Right, or just brought up some stuff the other guy didn't bring up. But I didn't feel confident that I knew why the Frenchman was not hired. I think that he, I guessed that it was just because he said six or seven months, but then the, uh, the German guy didn't give a timeline, I don't think, and so I really never did feel sure that I knew why they suddenly decided, no, he's not the guy. 
we know honesty and forthrightness and the kind of integrity is something that Gus and Mike really respect. And I could see that they would look at that guy in the beginning and say, he's very professional and he wants to do the right thing, but he's doing that thing of promising something without, they know without all the information that he needed to have. Do you know what I'm saying? Like he didn't ask any questions really. Just overconfident maybe. Still it was weird for them to peg it before they even talked to the second guy. But are we not supposed to believe that that's how these guys are weird geniuses, is that they were pegging someone's overconfidence as a, as a detriment, yes. in, even in the moment of him seeming like, well, sure, I'd hire him. He seems professional. Right. We may see the continuing saga of building the super lab, or it may be that this scene was just there to say, oh, the super lab, too, is a character from Breaking Bad that can have a cameo of sorts, you know? Right. They're, they're setting it up. Yep. Like you would set up Saul's office or any location that you know we're going to have in the future. I guess it would be a good chance now to talk a little bit about where Kim is... is going. I enjoyed the scenes this week, even if they were kind of painful for me. Hanging up on page was not a great idea. And even Kim seemed to know that uh, when she did it. Mm -hmm. But I don't know, where do you think this is going? I mean, obviously, Kim is, uh, is fulfilling her her promise, so to speak, to, to seek some of this glory by by helping the people who who need help. Yeah, she decided to get back in the trenches and uh, help people who need help. Um, but, um, yeah, it's hard to say with her uh, uh, flat expressions uh, how much she cares that uh, that she screwed up with uh, Mesa Verde. She could continue to screw up with them and, and, and let them go, but she did say it, it'll never happen again. But I wasn't sure how sincere she was about it. I think she was never more like Jimmy than she was in that moment where Paige was tearing her a new asshole and and she said it'll never happen again because there's no way she can promise it'll never happen again. There's no way she can be sure that that promise is real. Mm-hmm. Whenever you have one of those things that come up and you say it'll never happen again, there's no way that you can't be thinking, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> I guess the question we're kind of tiptoeing around is how self-destructive is Kim? We know Jimmy's self-destructive. We, we've seen him lie. Or, or change on a dime or do things that we don't think are in his best interest. Um, and I think we have to get used to the idea that Kim is like that, that she's a character who can who can sort of seem like she's doing the right thing, but then can turn around and handle it in a way that you go, well, gosh, I don't know that I would have hung up on Paige. Right. I don't see that she's ready to shit can the banking stuff so much as that she's kind of trying to do both things at once. Again, the same way that we've seen Jimmy do, where he's trying to walk on both sides of the a certain line. Right, she could lose her one money-making account if she's not careful, and I think she's just being a little reckless. But reckless in a way that feels like a real natural outgrowth of of who Kim is. There's a little arc of story that she has to herself that is not connected to any of the other things going on. I wonder if, in a weird way, Chuck being gone has cleared a lot of space. Hmm. That's true. I mean, just in in terms of of writing, how much room in the show you have. Well, I guess let's... uh, Let's talk about our friend Howard Hamlin and then come back around to to Jimmy. Howard is definitely having a rough time after what Jimmy said to him, I think. I mean, Mm -hmm. definitely because of what his role in Chuck's actual situation was, but also because of where Jimmy left things with him. I thought it was amazingly insensitive of Jimmy to say, what's eating you, to Howard. Right, but it really is. I mean, it sounded like an actual question to me that, that maybe, you know, he's just not clear on what would be bothering you this much because it's not bothering me that much. Um, so what's, is it, could it possibly be that? And I'm just going to ask you as if I have no idea what it is. I agree with you partially. I think that Jimmy was being somewhat sincere when he said that, that he wasn't, I don't think he was twisting the knife at all. Right. I almost feel like Jimmy was like, what's eating yet? Without doing the work in his head of thinking, wait a minute, what would be eating him? Oh yeah. He actually cares about Chuck. You know what I mean? I don't know that Jimmy was thinking about that in that moment. I think we were meant to recognize the insensitivity of it. But I thought it was really interesting, too, to see what Howard's going through and how it's affecting him. It was a different expression on, on Patrick Fabian, the actor's face, than we've seen yet. Right. Um, what did you think of Howard? And, and what do you think? Do you think that was just a little vignette that was meant to kind of show us where he's going? Or do you think this ongoing storyline of of the truth of, of the insurance claim that caused Chuck's problems, um, do you think that is still out there as kind of a, you know... Another shoe that's got to drop. It could be something we have to come back to. Um, I just don't know about it. Howard. I think that he, he, you know, he's definitely suffering and screwed up, but it's hard to say if that's going to be something that we continue to uh, watch and make note of and see if he gets better or if it's just kind of a little one-off scene that's put here to 
uh, show us and maybe show Jimmy how much he is not being affected. You know, it seems like Jimmy would have to, would have to see in that moment. Oh wow, this <laughs> this is hitting a man really hard, and it's not hitting me that hard in the same way. And just to compare his journey to Howard's, maybe the angel on Jimmy's shoulder might make him confess that he was the one that turned Chuck into the insurance company so that he can alleviate Howard's strain. And thinking he can put things right, I think it opens the door for Jimmy and Howard's relationship to be more interesting now. I kind of think that uh, it's very possible that the whole scene was just there to uh, give you a way to develop the the uh, uh, the shrink uh, possibilities. I think it ties that up. Obviously, seeing Howard in a terrible state and finding out that that guy is seeing a, a therapist, at least, if not a shrink, uh, twice a week, um, and thinking, well, this isn't going to do me any good. That seemed to kind of put the end on the idea that Jimmy's about to call this number that Kim gave him. You know, Jimmy had a, a lot of stuff to do in this episode, and actually we got some very Saul-like stuff, but we also got to see a thing that probably wouldn't happen to Saul because he tended to have backup or not put himself in a dangerous situation. Obviously, it was set off by sitting there trying to watch Dr. Zhivago while Kim worked, and I think that he felt a little jealous, maybe that she had something to do and a sense of purpose. And so he did something that is shady, but also kind of entrepreneurial and in a sense legal. And it seemed that he was paying for the phones legitimately and then going out and selling them on the street. I, I felt like it was a it was a great sequence, great montage. Um, you have to sort of buy that there's this many people hanging around this all night hot dog place that wanted a burner phone. But if you accept that leap, it was fun to see his salesmanship in action and to see then the number of people um, that he approached scored to the song Street Life by the Crusaders. Right. That was that was really fun. The whole sequence was was fun to me. But I, I think you're right that uh, sitting down to with the possibility of watching Dr. Zhivago by himself was again like boredom is getting him in trouble where i said last week he's just throwing this ball uh and then he starts getting ideas like a teenager in a small town that's this again like i'm sitting here dr zhivago is starting this is a long movie uh, it's got this long musical ovation opening and then he's like okay screw it i'm gonna go and and do some some mischief um so yeah i enjoyed that whole portion of the show a lot um he went and got his tracksuit from the nail salon I, it didn't occur to me that he still have stuff at the nail salon i wondered about that too it was a nice callback but I, I can't imagine jimmy spending any money on a space he doesn't need i guess he likely pays them a little something or they definitely would throw out his stuff you would think at any rate he gets the tracksuit and then he goes back to the hot dog place to unload some phones and it doesn't really go south until the very end. They, they did that usual thing that I think good storytellers do, where you see how he could have left having made a tidy profit and, and still had a few phones in the box. Right. But he went back, and it was then that he was walking back to his car alone, and as he said later, he parked maybe a little too far away. He's replaying the situation in his head and feeling like a fool for being rolled by these, by these punks. Mm-hmm. But it seemed like it really broke his spirit. Like, I was actually impressed and surprised that he seemed to... You know, he, he took the sign down, he washed the windows at the store, yeah. and he when he was talking to Kim, saying, what's wrong with me, um, uh, I think I'm going to talk to that shrink. I felt like that was very sincere and very earnest, that he's sort of, you could definitely tell he's being somewhat nostalgic for the guy he used to be when he's talking about how he never would have let those kids get one up on him back in the day. But I think at the end of that scene, before he talked to Howard, there is something kind of legitimate about his desire to figure things out. Like, he wants to yeah. do what's right. Yeah. How did you feel about that? And did you find that same note in his character that he seemed actually kind of introspective? Yes, for sure. When it was all over and she was cleaning him up, he says, what the hell's wrong with me? And I think he really does mean, um, you know, what he's thinking is, I have a compulsion to do criminal mischief that I sometimes allow to go from just thoughts into reality. And I don't know why, and I seem like I almost can't stop. And what the hell's what the hell's wrong with me? And I, you know, I would like to know what uh, what a, a shrink would tell me. But um, and right before that, it leads up to it because she says, you know, he he says when I was a kid, I wouldn't have let that happen. I would have been one of those punks or whatever. And she says those days are over. 
And he says, yeah, but, uh, and just leaves it there. And I think that he's thinking, yeah, but, uh, uh, I used, uh, but, uh, but on the inside, I still am one of them. Right. That's what he's realizing is that my, my inner secret identity that I don't tell anybody about is, uh, 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 a street kid who who skirts the law. Jimmy's not going to sell Kim on the notion that there's any reason why he should indulge Slippin' Jimmy. Right. And so it's better for him to keep it to himself than to hear her say, absolutely not, are you crazy? Yes. Also, it was interesting how much of the truth he was able to tell her without telling her the truth, really, about yeah. what he was doing. Right. So I think he's doing that weird crime of omission thing that can't go well in the long term as far as their relationship. But yeah. in this episode, they seem to be still sort of finding some way to communicate. And it's not like she's opening up to him about all of her shit either. Yeah. But I think that, yeah, he's being, he's genuine when he's saying what the hell's wrong with me. And this is what I was going to say earlier about the shrink is that he's saying what the hell's wrong with me. I think I'll call that shrink. And so really that means this whole thing with selling phones to me is kind of just – uh, uh, a big way of saying, hey, he really finds in himself some problems that make him say, I'm seriously going to get mental help. Uh, and then, before he does, this other thing happens where he meets Howard, hears about how Howard is going to a, a, a good uh, psychologist or uh, whoever uh, twice a week, and he witnesses that Howard is still completely messed up and says to himself, yeah, but you know what? That doesn't actually work and tears up the number and flushes it. So it's kind of a cul-de-sac. You know, if it's it's just a long way of saying uh, Jimmy has a good reason to think about getting help and then decides not to. Character development can create cul-de-sacs, but I think we're more aware than he is of certain things. And in other ways, he's a mystery to us. But we can see the the track he's on. We can see that this was was not totally a cul-de-sac because we found out something. Kim wants him to seek help. He said he would, but he's looking at Howard and he's going, I don't think that guy's getting very good help. And if he's if that's what getting help looks like, count me out, you know? Right. We found out why he's not going to do it. Right. And we found out that he really did want to. I do think it was significant to see Jimmy kind of burn that that last chance at a sort of normal solution to his problem. Because you'll remember that Peter Gould and... And uh, Vince Gilligan are fond of saying that they, they approach this show saying, what problem does becoming Saul Goodman solve? Mm -hmm. Well, if he goes to therapy, there's not really a need for that kind of solution. Mm -hmm. So in a weird way, he was taking away one more alternate path. Right. So I guess that leaves us with that last scene. And I don't know what to call the guy who Jimmy was interviewing with. Um, but the, the caseworker who's, who's checking into his uh, PPD. Right. Which I now have forgotten what that stands for. Do you remember? Uh, I don't remember what it stands for, but it has to do with, with his his being on probation from being a lawyer for, for the next uh, year. With his mandated break from practicing law. Right. Uh, maybe I'll interject in a robotic voice, like right now, what PPD stands for. Okay. PPD stands for pre-prosecution diversion. Um, but who knows? Maybe I didn't do that. <laughs> but what I thought was interesting in that scene is outside of the practicing with a partner aspect of what Jimmy said, the fact that he was kind of saying it with a little bit of defiance, that he was going to be back and he was going to have a law office and he was going to be a lawyer. Mm -hmm. In an episode that began with a scene of Saul Goodman at the end of his glory days, this scene felt like Jimmy kind of cooking up the identity of Saul in a way. Like there's a little bit of screw you in the way that he was saying, I'm going to be a lawyer. Mm. Um, and so outside of mentioning that he's going to have a partner, and meaning obviously he thinks he's going to rejoin with Kim. I felt like he sort of laid out the plan to be Saul Goodman. Mm, well, yeah, one could look at it that way. I hadn't really thought of that. I wasn't sure what the point of the scene was to me, but it's uh, to me it said, well, maybe they want to, uh, after they've just told you, hey, he, he tore up the shrink's number, uh, if anyone was asking, oh, does that mean he's just going to be a, a street criminal and doesn't mind, that they're telling you, no, no, he is determined to be a lawyer. He's just not seeking help in staying ethical. He's not going to end up being the kind of lawyer he wants to be. And the reason is because he's himself and he can't help it. But at this moment, Jimmy wants to be that good lawyer. Yeah. Like there's a part of him that wants to be the good lawyer and wants to be maybe not Chuck, but Kim, somebody that he looks up to or admires. 
and yet we know he's not going to be able to pull it off. Yeah. There's a weird pathos to that moment of Jimmy saying defiantly, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be a lawyer and you're not going to, I'm going to be the best lawyer in lawyer town. Right. That's his answer to his problems is to be the best lawyer he can be. And he really is sort of mad that he has to wait maybe. As ever, they're they're knocking harder and harder on the door of the character that we thought this show <laughs> was going to be about. Mm-hmm. This is Johnny Rhythm just saying good night to you all and God bless you. Well, now is the time called the point of comparison, just to let people who are listening know this is where you can jump off if you were here for the Salt Talk and you don't want to hear anything about any other spinoffs, especially spinoffs that a lot of people may never have heard of. <laughs> Did you know there was a girl from Uncle before before your finger fell down in the Bulgaria area? Uh, only to the extent that I had heard the name of it. You know, I, I don't think I'd have ever, ever uh, seen an episode. Or maybe not even a clip. To me, this was an education because not only did we watch the Girl from Uncle spinoff, the first episode of the spinoff, we also watched the backdoor pilot episode of The Man from Uncle, which set up the characters and the scenario that was spun off, but did not feature the same actors. So, right. I don't know. Uh, what were your general thoughts and, you know, maybe the quality of The Girl from Uncle? And if you want to get a little bit into The Man from Uncle as a point of comparison, uh, since we both watched both episodes. Well, the uh, Girl from Uncle first episode, I watched that first, and uh, unfortunately, the, the the transfers online that we watched uh, was a little weird. I think somebody just uh, filmed it with their camera pointed at a TV, and they left off the edges, and so it was a strange experience where the sound was not great, the picture was not great, and it was cropped in a funny way. If anyone has watched it before listening to us talk about it, or if you're about to, I apologize about the link. Yeah. It was the only place to watch the, the full episode. But it definitely was an off-putting thing because at times you would not see someone's mouth, so you couldn't right. see their expression. And it was right. really funny watching the credits because no names show up on screen, just the top two-thirds of people's heads. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so yeah, that was it was enlightening to find out how much difference it makes to watch something where where on close-ups of people's faces, you never see their mouth. It was, it was kind of like, oh, this this might be what TV would be like on some other planet. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, it, was an, it was an okay show, and it had a bunch of, uh, uh, or a few clever ideas, and I guess that's the main thing they trafficked in on Man From U.N.C.L.E. Uh, and this episode of Girl From U.N.C.L.E. is, uh, here's some neat ideas, uh, but they're so silly that you kind of wonder, how much is this for kids? Or how much is this for just everyone? And they're also just making sure it's simple enough and novel enough for the kids. Uh, but there's some silly things in there. Like one thing is they've got uh, some slow motion gas. The bad guys are going to uh, shoot at people they're experimenting with. They're crop dusting some Greeks with slow motion gas. Apathane. Oh, like apathy. And the effect is that then... They go into slow motion, not by having the actors start acting sluggish, but rather by cranking the camera up so that so that everything goes into slow motion. And this is the evil plan. You're going to start squirting people with, with slow motion gas. That was wacky. As you mentioned, the sound quality was so bad on this this version of it that we watched that it was very hard to understand a lot of the names and the things that were being said. And it took me forever to tell, oh, okay, Apathane is the name of the slow-mo drug. Apollo Zakynthios is the name of the bad guy mm-hmm. um, with the uh, fishing pole weapon. Yes. That the more it went on seemed to me like a really weird sort of, I don't know what you want to say, stereotypical depiction of a Greek person as such a fisherman that even when he's a supervillain, <laughs> he's got like a fishing theme to his villainy. But it was some kind right. of weird fishing pole that he used as a weapon, but also a way to grab things. And also like there's a dachshund yeah. who's carrying fleas that have the antidote to the slow-mo drug in the fleas. Right. The dog's name is Pootsie. I was straining my ears to follow the logic of the story because so many of these yes. proper nouns were getting lost in the bad quality. I'm to understand that the girl from Uncle was intended to be more spoofy than The Man From U.N.C.L.E., Mm. and that even The Man From U.N.C.L.E. became more spoofy with the success of the Batman television show that came out in 1966. Yes, it started to edge towards Batman-ish, but it wasn't wasn't clear that they thought it was funny, except that you thought, wow, these ideas, some of them are so cartoony that uh, they had to know, such as just the normal stuff of like, oh, let's take the good spy and have the bad guys hang him on a trapeze over a pool full of piranha. And then let's leave the room while they uh, try to 
get free. Let's have a scientist named Antoine Fromage. Even in 1966, it seems like they would be fully aware, yep, this is the kind of regular junk we always do. The Man From U.N.C.L.E. episode, which we'll talk about in a minute, was much tighter and had better production values and just seemed to be more comfortable with what it is. I found myself really struggling to stay engaged when I was watching uh, The Girl From U.N.C.L.E., even though as a as a little period piece and a time capsule, it's it's interesting. And, you know, seeing Stephanie Powers before, before she was uh, one half of Heart to Heart mm-hmm. was kind of interesting. The main highlight of the episode, I would say, is, um, uh, is Pootsie the dachshund. Uh, just anytime you have a cute dachshund in a show, it's going to steal the show, and they have it parachuting in <laughs> and running around all the time. The moments where he's in there, it's kind of like that darn cat or something where you have a moment of like, yay, this is fun right now. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm looking at a little dog, uh, uh, just especially in in today's world of Facebook and constantly watching kitten videos and puppy videos it's like i think we're more attuned to uh uh be ready to realize uh what a, a perfect entertainment that is so uh i would i would say the dachshund really stole the show it was all about pootsie for me too especially parachuting pootsie that was yeah no fan. parachuting pootsie pootsie being passed back and forth you knew she wasn't going to end up in the piranha tank but it still was a, a faint possibility that something bad could have happened to Pootsie. But as the show went on, I, I became pretty clear the tone of this is definitely not the sort of show where they're going to kill a dog. It's 1966. I don't think that would have been... Like, Old Yeller was the only thing where you could kill a dog. Right. But that's that one episode. I'm sure there was not a cute animal on, on the typical Girl from Uncle episode. And this one is called The Doggone Affair. Yeah, apparently all the episodes of The Man from Uncle and this show were The Something Affair. Right. Later in the episode, there's like one of the most flaccid chase scenes I've ever seen, too, where there's a guy running from some guys in a Jeep. Yeah. And he's running around that kind of fountain area. And did you notice that they waited until he was out of shooting range to then pull up their guns and start shooting at him? It was just Uh one of those funny scenes where (laughs) they just had actors that aren't really physically trained. This was before the days of great fight choreography, kind of miming this really dumb fight. And it's very, you know, shot from a long shot. All it needed was a a gorilla in a go-kart to make it seem totally wacky. Yeah. The whole chase goes around and around in a circle, so you don't have to film a whole bunch of different blocks or anything. They just are in one little courtyard. But it has the deadly fishing lure zinging out and whacking you in the back. So, uh, you know, it's got that going for it. I wonder if Agent Mark Slade's sweater got torn in every episode. Neil Harrison, and he is the son of Rex Harrison. I do think that he probably was supposed to be something of of a heartthrob, so maybe he did get his uh, shirt torn a lot like uh, Captain Kirk back, did uh, back in those days. Before I forget, I do want to say that um, my favorite line in the whole show definitely uh, was delivered by Apollo Zakynthius, the the villain. When he comes into the room and he has seen them remove Pootsie from the inside of a larger stuffed dog that is on the bed of the character Tuesday Hajidakis, mm-hmm. a, a Greek girl who ends up helping the spies in their effort to stop Apollo and in, in his nefarious plan. But Apollo comes in and sees them pulling Pootsie out of the stuffed animal on the bed. And he says, most ingenious, a dog within a dog. That's a placeholder where a really cool malevolent line could have been. (laughs) Right. Let's talk a little bit about how this spun off from what some people might call the actual pilot for The Girl from Uncle, which was the episode of The Man from Uncle that had a different cast. Uh, At least the two leads were different, and I would say dramatically different in terms of how they come across, the way they're written and so forth. In uh, this episode, Neil Harrison played Mark Slate, and Stephanie Powers of, of Heart to Heart played the character April Dancer. Which was a character name actually suggested by Ian Fleming, interestingly enough. But in the episode of Man from Uncle called The Moonglow Affair that introduced these characters, they were played by Marianne Mobley. Yes. Played Dancer, April Dancer. And Norman Fell was uh, her, her partner. A.K.A. Mr. Roper from Three's Company, in case anyone doesn't know that name. Yes, Mr. Roper. And I thought, watching this episode... Moonglow Affair. Well, I mean, it's a little bit skewed in my mind because the picture was so much better uh, and the sound and everything was, was so much better on the on the versions we had online. Uh, but just the same, I'm pretty sure I could tell that this was just much more enjoyable than uh, the first episode of The Girl from Uncle. And uh, they should have kept Marianne Mobley and Norman Fell. 
I thought Mary Immobile was better than Stephanie Powers. Stephanie Powers has played it kind of flat, and she's cool looking. She's a redhead, and she, you know, she looks sort of like a badass. But Marianne Mobley had something about her that was like a, uh, she just had a sort of a, a spunk. She was a, a slight but clever, and just the the way she did it made me uh, worry more about her, but also root for her more. I don't know. I just liked her more. And of course, Norman Fell is a much better idea to to say we're going to have a cute girl spy, and he she's going to have. This guy who's just turned 40, but you're supposed to, or he's older than 40, we don't know how old he is, but you're supposed to retire from uncle when you're 40, and so he uh, is managing to not retire, but he's obviously self-conscious about his age, and he's a sort of a silly little man. Uh, that's a much better idea than just, like, two sexy people running around. Right. I mean, he's he's sexist to her and she's ageist to him, if you want to look at it in the terms of the sort of gags that it lends itself to. But playfully and lightly, they're not... Oh, no, playfully and lightly, for sure. But I'm just saying he's like, oh, she's a girl, agent, we're going to have that. Mm -hmm. And then she's like, aren't you a little old for this? And so are various people along the episode saying, you seem a little out of shape. And Norman Fell has a has a very awkwardly choreographed fight scene where I think there's a pretty obvious stuntman uh, in one of the shots and then a very silly karate chop that, yes. <laughs> that Norman Fell does in another shot. And again, you don't know how much they were intending that to be silly, but definitely he's playing it for laughs, the fact that he's out of breath after that, you know? Right. I think that, that, that sort of stuff, yeah, it felt like something that- That's like an idea. That's an idea, and there's it's a completely shot. absent from the girl from Uncle. You're right. The, the characters in that, all they have is a vague sort of will they, won't they, do they like each other kind of hint percolating around the edges, which is nowhere near as interesting as she's a young up and comer, and he's kind of being pulled off the shelf, right? Or he's being called back into action. So my idea was that they did this Mongol affair, and they were like, "That's great, we're doing a spinoff," but somewhere some executives were like, "Where's the sex appeal for the girls?" Because I think that. Uh, Ilya Kuryakin on, on, on Man From U.N.C.L.E. was a, a heartthrob to teenage girls, right? Oh, he was a total pinup, yeah. And so maybe they said, well, we've got we've to have that on this show. And so throw out Norman Fell and for whatever reason throw out uh, uh, Marianne Mobley as well and start with a couple other people who were going to be uh, a little more sexy. But that was, that was a mistake. Yeah, I agree. Even though the Marianne Mobley version of the character did have some really kind of dated jokes, like the fact that there's a long extended gag with her loading up her purse and dumping out her purse. and <laughs> Right. Which, again, that feels very condescending. Right. Women. But she also kind of has what she needs and she keeps it together. And it did feel like all those things she was getting into her purse could be spy gadgets. Right. No, I thought the same thing. I thought, that... well, she's, she's able to get 100 spy gadgets into her purse, maybe. Right. That could be laser lipstick. For all we know. Right. right. Um, and it's just not set up or spelled out. But yeah, I totally agreed about preferring the original casting. Even though Stephanie Powers does have this kind of almost forward thinking from, from 66, she feels a little bit more hip, late 60s kind of cool than Marianne Mobley. Yeah. Um, but I thought that the character of Marianne Mobley was so much more, I mean, there, she's just kind of the way that she's like an upbeat young agent who's really kind of trying to prove herself, but also has this sort of unflappable quality that yes. I thought actually worked pretty well. I mean, I was actually surprisingly, I bought into her as a character, even though they were totally doing a very of its time thing of saying, she's a girl, but she knows what to do in this situation. Right. But then the worst part was that in the end, Norman Fell totally rescues her. She doesn't get to be the, I thought the, the best dynamic would be that she's the real hero and he's the funny sidekick, but that he's competent, but that, you know, that really she's a, a super spy. But no, <laughs> because it's 1966, I guess, uh, in the end, she is overcome by the mind-scrambling Ray and is totally undone. And then Norman Fell sweeps in, rescues her, and he's like, here we are, you're okay now because I rescued you. I read into this a little bit because I had the same kind of disquieting feeling you had. Um, and I found that a criticism of the Stephanie Powers show, even for its time, was that she frequently uses her sexual wiles uh, in the spy mission mm -hmm. and that it was uh, Neil Harrison's character, Mark Slate, who 
did the action stuff, kind of as we saw in this one. He does more fighting and, and wrestling yeah. and, 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 and freeing her and saving her. And she does a little bit of saving of herself, but mostly uses wiles and, you know, the, the right. feminine charms to get through the caper, as though that's one of her skills as a spy. And it's what Marianne Mobley was doing on the Moonglow Affair, too. She, she was like, I'll, <laughs> you know, I'll dance with the bad guy and get him all excited, and then we'll go back to his office, and that's where I'll find the microdots. But, uh... Yeah, it's definitely sad to to lose Norman Fell. He had that, uh, you know how in 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 uh, Three's Company, he was always looking at the camera, and I'm pretty sure there was a looking at the camera take in the Man from Uncle episode where uh, uh, you couldn't fully tell for sure because he had a scuba mask on, but it really seemed like he stopped, looked at the camera, and said, you know, just uh, uh, with his eyes, "Can you believe this?" And then moved on. What's funny is I made the same note, but at a different point. Oh. I had at the moment where the guy in the laundry truck says, hey, mister, you're a little out of shape, aren't you? That I, I wrote in my notes, Normanville doesn't quite do a roper look, but it's close enough. Yes, it was pretty close. He's almost doing it. I did like the BS science. I mean, the last episode, the episode of Girl from Uncle had uh, apathane. Um, this had a quartzite radiation projector. Right. Um, which... You know, I thought that the way that they took out Ilya and Napoleon early in this episode made this very interesting in that it really was a pilot for a different show. I mean, I don't right. know how often they were not center stage, but it, they swept them. It wasn't like canon in the Barnaby Jones pilot where it was basically an episode of canon with canon mm-hmm. throughout. It was like, no, this would have felt like an odd episode, I would guess, of The Man from U.N.C.L.E. Yeah. For how, how much it focused on these other characters. But yeah, for sure, with this radiation projector, you can just... Turn someone into a jelly person whose senses don't work anymore, and then oh, you just re- reverse the uh, polarity on that, shoot them again, and they'll be fine. That's science for you. We should talk a little bit about the villain in this, Arthur mm-hmm. Caress, played mm-hmm. by Kevin McCarthy. His sister Jean, played by Mary Carver, who I will talk about in a second. Uh, these actors, these old actors who were on tons of shit that we watched, but she comes in and sees April. Searching around Arthur Caress's office, and she says, isn't that just like a woman, always trying to redecorate? <laughs> and I was like, wow, even coming from a woman. Man, this is some, the 60s where the sexism was high quality. It seemed like a line that was not written for a, a female character that was delivered by a, a female character. Right. Um, but yeah, the, the story was just full of little interesting things, even just the fact that the uh, Caress Cosmetics is having a contest to choose Miss Moonglow, and that we find out that Miss Moonglow is to launch a line of glow-in-the-dark <laughs> lipstick. Oh, right. But to me, it was a fun surprise when her lips glowed in the dark and that he kissed her. And Well, then, then his lips were glowing, so he was mistaken for her and got shot. That was a cool idea. It could have been very dark, uh, too, that the sister kills the brother, but in fact, she says something like, I'll call an ambulance, which just suggests that they didn't kill Arthur Caress. Mm, yeah. But while we're on the subject of Arthur Caress and his sister, I just want to give you, Chris, and this is going to take me a minute, but I want you to follow me. Right now, you've walked into my house, and I've got pictures of actors up on a board, and I've got pieces of yarn pulled around the room, and I've got names and things, and I just want to, I just want to take you through. Okay, Kevin McCarthy, the very recognizable character actor, who plays Arthur Caress. Mm-hmm. Kevin McCarthy was on Canon in 1974, so that's relevant to our interests. He played three different characters on Murder, She Wrote. Yep. Uh, also, Robert Vaughn plays three different characters on Murder, She Wrote. Wow. Kevin McCarthy was also on Love Boat, which is a show I know that you watched yep. recently enough. He also appeared on A-Team. He also appeared on Columbo. I feel like he would have been a bad guy in like um, Tales from the Crypt or uh, uh, Cat's Eye. Or something. Well, you know, he was in the Twilight Zone movie. He was oh, right. one of the people terrorized by the kid who uh, yes. who could wish you to the cornfield. And he was on the original Twilight Zone, too. And he was the villain in uh, UHF, too. The guy who owns the station, I guess. Okay. So that kind mm-hmm. of character actor. Well, then Robert Vaughn, who we all recognize and we know, he was one of the leads on, on Man from U.N.C.L.E. Um, but yeah, in addition to being on A-Team and Columbo himself, he was on Love Boat. I already mentioned that he played different characters on Murder, She Wrote. He was different characters on... Columbo as well. He also appeared on Trapper John MD, which is relevant to our interests because it's the other MASH spinoff that we didn't talk about. And then Mary Carver, she was on Rockford Files, Mannix, and McLeod, which doesn't count as canon or Barnaby Jones, but I feel like it's close enough. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting about Mary Carver is she was Cecilia Simon on Simon & Simon. She played the mother of Rick and AJ, who was on a ton of episodes. Oh. And probably including, I don't know if she was on the episode that featured... 
Kevin McCarthy. But Kevin McCarthy was also on Simon and Simon at one point. Mm. So these are these TV actors who just did everything and they just, it's so incestuous and the playing multiple characters, you know, mm-hmm. this is like a, is like a weird nexus. Like you could play a weird kind of Kevin Bacon game with these three actors and it would probably get you through most 70s and 80s television. Oh yeah, easily. If you had enough yarn. Right. I ran out. Clearly. I started using floss. I ran out. <laughs> You've got all kinds of various strings and twines. Well, anything else about the various uh, worlds of uncle? Men and girls from there? Uh, no, I, th- I think we covered it. I had a fairly good time overall, but uh, I didn't love the girl from Uncle, except for uh, the little dog. That was the, that was the highlight. And if you include the backdoor pilot as, as what we're considering here, does that change your rating at all? Or does it change your favorite thing? Is Pootsie still the winner? Or did you like Norman Fell or Marianne Mobley more than Pootsie? I did like watching that episode uh, uh, well enough. And the glowing lipstick, uh, it was definitely better better than Girl from Uncle. But, uh, uh, but still, I, th- I guess overall, it's, it's a just okay world. Like, like we said, it's sort of... Uh, kitschy and campy, but isn't really telling you how kitschy and campy they think it is. I guess maybe that takes it off the campy list if it's not clearly self-aware. Uh, so, I don't know. It's just a, a little bit of a, a fuzzy world. They're not they're not making it clear like, say, a Batman. It doesn't wink at you, but it's maybe got something in its eye. Right. And it's true. Norman Fell uh, did, did look at the camera, I'm pretty sure, with his scuba mask on. Yeah, it was sort of educational for me. I, I now understand what The Man from Uncle was and um, The Girl from Uncle. I would put the pilot episode, the backdoor pilot, well ahead of the first episode of the show, uh, The Girl from Uncle. But still, neither one of them was able to unseat Better Call Saul in my personal spinoff ranking that we've covered thus far. Do you feel the same or or did The Man from Uncle charm you? No, I definitely agree. Better Call Saul is, is going to be the better show. So I'm sticking with it. All right, sticking with it for now. There's one thing I want to mention to everyone out there before we wrap this one up, and that is that in an upcoming episode, we're going to be responding to any questions or comments or anything that listeners send in. So if you want to get in touch with us, you can follow us on Twitter at Saul underscore searching, and you can message us there, or you can send us an email at searching at gmail.com. Uh, anything that we get sent, we will look at and we will potentially you know read or respond to on the show. So Saul underscore searching on Twitter and searching at gmail.com. Simple enough. Cool. Well, I think that about covers it. Okay. Until next time, hot talk. Hot talk. <laughs>